Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. She wasn't like any man or woman that I had ever experienced before. And I remember saying to my parents, but, but like, but what is she? And my parents just went, she's Grace Jones. My guest today is artist and writer, Jason Ford. His Insta novella, Strange Fruit, was long listed for the Polari First Book Prize. He's currently busy working on a new writing project. Hello, Jason, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I say at the start of this podcast that not all heroes wear capes, but you do. When did the dressing up begin for you? Um, it was quite young, but it what would like probably surprise you and most of the people that know me, I was a painfully shy child. I always sort of tried to hide in the shadows or hide behind my mother's coattails. So what happened was one day that I was totally humiliated by an adult at church because I was not talking and he was speaking to me and he just picked me up and shook me and said, ah, oh, when an adult speaks to you, you must speak to them back. And I could see from all the adults around me, including my mother, they were all horrified, but nobody did anything to stop it. And I remember at that point thinking, I can never let this happen to me again because no one's gonna protect me. So I have to protect myself. I sort of decided in that moment that I would become someone different. I would become gregarious so to speak. And one of the first people who I saw as a role model was Grace Jones, because to be perfectly honest, the first time I ever saw her, she terrified me. And <laughs> I, I couldn't, under, she was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And I couldn't understand how someone could be. She was just so striking and so androgynous and so seemingly fearless. And she was everything that I wasn't and everything that I wanted to be. She wasn't like any man or woman that I had ever experienced before. And I remember saying to my parents, but, but like, but what is she? And my parents just went, she's Grace Jones. So I started looking into her more and my parents kept telling me, she's a singer, she's an actress, she's, she's a model, she's, she, she is a role model. She has been, there is no one else like her. And I thought, well, that's something I want to be. I want to create my own self. I first saw her on, I think it was Top of the Pops, singing Private Life. And then I watched the one-man show on VHS with my friend Caroline, and we were obsessed with it. And I can remember the music press were often quite sneery about her. What she was doing, both musically and in terms of her image, was incredibly empowering. I mean... That track, Living My Life, is mm. an incredibly angry song about racism. 
she often isn't credited for that. She's seen as somebody who was just striking poses, but there was so much more to her than just that, wasn't there? Absolutely. She was so fearless and she carved out a place for herself in pop culture and in music that was quite unlike anything anybody else had done. We talk a lot in the Black community about colorism. Grace is a very dark woman. And dark skin is, when you ha have dark skin, it does make life in the white world much more difficult. And she was such an, uh, a powerful reminder of what is possible and what you can do with that power. She was never just an image. She was so much more than that. She took those images around Black femininity and what they represented, or Black femaleness, and she kind of parodied it. Now, I remember some of the early images where she was inside a cage, and there yeah. was somewhere she kind of referenced Josephine Baker. Mm. I mean, there was this sense that she was some kind of animalistic and she was kind of owning that, wasn't she? And saying, well, I'm going to be that and throw it back at you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, so often the rhetoric around Black people is about this animalistic sexuality. You know, it goes back to the man dingo and slavery. And Grace took that and, and did throw it back in people's faces, saying, yeah, well, if, if you're going to present me as a monster, I, I'm going to own that. I'm going to not only own it, I'm going to blow it up, I'm going to make it even bigger, and I'm going to put it back in your face, and you're going to buy it. And they did. And that to me was really, really empowering, seeing someone own their Blackness and not be ashamed of it, not apologize for it. She's completely unapologetic. If she's terrifying to you, well, so be it. That says more about you than it does about her. I know it's very fashionable to say so now, but I think even at the time I would have said this, certainly by the 90s, there is something very queer about her. Oh, um, yeah. And not just in terms of the androgyny, there's something about the way that she defies conventions and expectations around different intersections to do with gender, race. I mean, there's something very disruptive, queer in the sense yeah. of being disruptive. I think disruptive is a perfect descriptor for Grace. And I think that's... That's what I learned from her was that you don't have to sit into a neat little box, but also you can take the things that are thrown at you and build a stronger, better person from it and encourage other people by doing so. How did that help you at the time? Do you remember how it felt at the time? Because I'm mixed race. I've always lived between two worlds. You know, I was born in New York, but I grew up in Australia. My mother's white in Australia, my father's an African-American. And so I sort of never, I never fit comfortably anywhere. When I was in New York, people would identify me as Australian. And when I was in Australia, they'd identify me as American. So I never really sat comfortably anywhere. And what Grace taught me was that I didn't have to, that there was actually a power in the spaces in between the cultures that I lived in and that that was a strength, not something to bemoan or be sad about, that there was there was power in living in, in the spaces in between. I can remember also a very iconic picture that was on the cover of the Face magazine where she did white face. Yeah, I love that. That is one of my all-time favorite photos of her. The work she did with Jean Bourgoud was so amazing. There has retrospectively people have said that it was not transgressive, that it was just playing in into the tropes. But I think that was the point of it. That was the power of it is that they were creating these images 
out of racism, out of racist tropes and going, well, this is how you see us. I'm going to give it back to you. I think there was possibly at the time an assumption that if a woman is doing something and she's working with a man, it must be the man that's making all the rules and making the decisions. It's such a tired, misogynistic line of thought. And Beyonce faces it all the time. In the beginning, it was all her dad. And now it's all Jay-Z. And I'm like, can you honestly not believe that a woman can have her own agency. These are incredibly talented women. To dismiss this as being some man's creation just says so much more about you than it, it does about them. I've seen her live quite a few times. The first time was at the Fridge Nightclub, a very famous occasion where she arrived about five hours late. Then I saw her at Purple in the Park, which was a queer pop festival in Brockwell Park. And again, she came on late and again, owned it completely. And then, I didn't see her for a while until the Hurricane album came out and I saw that at the Roundhouse, which was absolutely just mind-blowing. And then I saw her do a shorter set from that tour at Lovebox. It was still daylight and you're thinking, how is she going to achieve what she did at the Roundhouse? There was the famous glitter ball hat with the yeah. laser beam coming off it. You thought, how will she achieve that in an open air situation in a park? And she completely owned that. She completely yeah. blew the whole crowd away. She was astonishing. The Hurricane Tour uh, performances were amazing. And just to see someone of her age with that level of energy and commitment still after being a performer for so long was just amazing. I actually got to meet her during that, that tour because one of my friends was pole dancing for her. Nico's an incredibly uh, talented pole dancer. He's one of the most extraordinary, beautiful men that I've ever known. and. He, uh, Grace hired him to pole dance while she was performing and he, they painted him with the Keith Haring paint yeah. that she had. But anyway, so he was body painted like that. So, I'm not perfect video. Yeah, so Nico knows how much I love Grace. And he was like, right, so when we're in London, come, because I want, I want you to meet her. Because I've told her all about you and I want you to meet her. And I was like, okay, I will, I will be there. There is no way in hell I'm missing this date. So we got there and I, I got there early. And at first he was like, she's in the trailer. She's preparing. No, none of us are allowed to like go near her now because she's getting ready. She's getting in the zone for the set. But trust me, you will meet her. It's fine. You just, just don't leave this area. So I, I waited and waited and waited. And then she came out and like breezed past me to go onto the stage so that I ran out and watched from the wings, which was just amazing. And like you said, that, that she manages to create this intimate sort of nightclub experience in broad daylight on a huge stage was just incredible. And then afterwards, she was back in the trailer. I walk back into her VIP section and Jerry Hall is sitting at a, a table sipping champagne. I'm like, oh my God, this is my like Studio 54 fantasy. Jerry Hall's here. Who else is going to be here? We waited and waited and waited. And then Nico's like, okay, it's calmed down come in. So we go inside and, and she's sitting there holding court and laughing and talking to her friends. And then Nico goes, Grace, this is my friend, Jason. He's a huge fan. He's the one I've been telling you about. Um, um, he wants to meet you. And I had my vampire fangs in and she got up and she came in to hug me and she saw the fangs and she went, oh, bite me. And leaned in with her neck. And I was like, okay, I, I might actually die in this moment because I now might get to bite Grace Jones. And I, so I leaned in and she went, oh no, it's going to hurt. Don't, don't bite me, don't bite me. And she hugged me tight. And she's like, it's so lovely to meet you. Um, she's like, Nico, Nico, Jason doesn't have a drink. 
he needs a drink, get a drink. And he picked up a champagne bottle that was open. It was Cristal. And then she looks around and she's like, oh, darling, we don't have any glasses. I'm sorry, you're just gonna have to drink from the bottle and just handed me the bottle. And I was like, okay, I can die now. I can <laughs> officially die. Grace Jones has handed me a bottle of Cristal and I can't believe I'm here at all. And, and then she went back to talking to her friends and I was just sort of standing in the trailer drinking Cristal out of the bottle going, how is this my life? On the car ride home, I burst into tears and cried the whole way home because I just, it was, I was so overwhelmed. And once I was out of her presence, I was just, I just collapsed because I was like, I can't believe that I've actually met her and she was lovely. And yeah, it was just, it was one of my happiest moments. There are two things I want to clarify. One is you mentioned you're wearing your fangs. You have vampire fangs that are detachable that you yeah. often wear when you're when you're out and about. Grace, of course, plays a vampire in the schlocky film Vamp. And you also mentioned their Studio 54. I was at your wedding. <laughs> you arrived at your wedding reception dressed in your vampire finery, riding a horse. I did indeed. Yes, yes. Well, as part of the world that I've kind of created for myself, you know, Studio 54 is kind of one of my go-to references. So when we got married, I was like, yeah, I want to enter on a horse. And in, in Indian culture, that's that's quite a traditional thing. So it's really easy to hire a horse for weddings. So I did. And yeah, so I got to live my Bianca Jagger fantasy. Let's go on to your second hero. And this is, again, somebody who became known to most people during the 80s. And again, somebody who played with gender and race in different ways through their public persona and their work. So who is it and why have you chosen them? So my second hero is Prince. And the reason I've chosen him is because in my late teens, when I was sort of not necessarily struggling with my sexuality, but struggling with my connection to myself as a sexual being, Prince was someone who taught me that actually sex is a really wonderful and mystical and holy experience. And it was through his music that I kind of began to become unafraid of sex and being a sexual being. What age would you have been when you first heard him? Well, when I first heard him would have been Purple Rain and my parents were very against him because they were like, all, he, all he's doing is stealing James Brown's material. And my parents were, despite being huge R&B fans, were not fans of Prince. And so he was never really accepted in our household. And it wasn't until we moved back to New York and I met my friend Andrew, who was a massive Prince fan. And he started introducing me to Prince's back catalog. So I was about 16 or 17. In terms of your sexuality, you grew up in a very religious background. Can you just yeah. talk a little bit about how that affected you in terms of realizing that you were probably gay and how you felt about it at the time? So I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. My maternal grandmother was Jehovah's Witness. She introduced my father to it when my parents got married and he became very devout. My mother was never terribly devout or religious, but it was what my father wanted. So therefore it's what my mother wanted. And that was very stifling because I grew up 
very much having to be the perfect little Christian soldier. It very much, it limited who I was because I knew from a very young age that I would be involved in the arts in some way. But Jehovah's Witnesses are not, you're not really meant to build an, a life in the world. Everything outside of the church is basically forbidden. So whereas I had dreamed of going to art school, that was, I was not supposed to do that. I was really only supposed to be a good little Christian soldier and convert more little good Christian soldiers until the end times and all the unbelievers were washed away. I grew up very much not believing in a future because I, I knew that I didn't believe any of this. And I knew for some reason that I was different to everybody else. And I, I did keep hoping one day that God was going to reveal himself to me and, and that this would all make sense and that I could commit. But I didn't really think that was going to happen. Or if there was a God that he was never going to reveal himself to me. They believe in this thing called the Great Tribulation, which is when we would all be tested. That would be your final grade as to whether or not you were going to get in, into the kingdom of heaven. And one of the references they would use was that Jehovah's Witnesses were also persecuted during the Holocaust. And so there was this constant threat of a Holocaust that was coming. And I kept thinking, this is really unfair because I don't want to end up in a death camp for something that I don't believe. And yet I can't escape. Your whole world is, is in that church. So if you decide you don't want to be a part of it, you lose your family, you lose your friends, you lose everything that the entire world that you know. And that's the only world I'd ever known. But I knew that I was not meant to be a part of this world, that there was something else for me. It's still to this day, I would say, I still have, I live in the present and I find it very difficult to forward plan because from a very young age, I've always been told there is no future. So, you know, that stifled my creativity. It sort of stifled my options for what else I could do. It certainly stifled my sexuality because sex is something that you only do once you're married. And I couldn't really imagine getting married because there was something about that that just didn't quite ring true for me either. So I played along and I was very good at it. But I always knew that somehow I had to get out. So I think most of my childhood was spent waiting for what I believed would come one day, which was a window. And as soon as I saw that window, I was going to jump through it. And essentially, that's kind of what I did. So God didn't reveal himself to you, but Prince did. He did indeed. I think the thing that helped me the most in that was that Prince always sang about God. He would sing about God and sex in the same sentence. And that to me was a really radical concept because my mother not being overly devout was always very sort of honest and straightforward. And she would always say that sex is wonderful. Sex is not something to be scared of. It's, it's not something that's shameful. It's a wonderful part of being human. My father, however, did not pass on. So I was getting mixed messages this whole time that on one hand, my mother was like, your body is a gift and it's wonderful and sex is a gift and it's part of expressing who you are. My father's like, yes, but it must be contained and it has to be done in this certain way. And my mother once told me after they split up that she had never seen my father naked in the lights. Anytime they had sex, he would turn the lights off and he would get it changed in the dark. And I was like, you've never seen him naked. She's like, no, not with the lights on, never. Whereas my mother being a straight, 
was much more comfortable with her body and she would get changed in front of us but my father would have an absolute fit about that he was like you can't see your mother naked it says so in the bible and he would go to scripture to sort of back this up and i was like that's not what that scripture says that's not the meaning of that and he was like you don't know what you're talking about i'm like well if you can interpret it i can interpret it too i don't know how my brother is because he's straight and married now but our father definitely gave us very weird views on sex and sexuality in our bodies. And it was only through Prince's music that I kind of began to go, actually, no, my mother's right and you're wrong. It's ironic that Prince then became a Jehovah's Witness. It was very, very upsetting for me when <laughs> I found out that news. Just like, you're the only reason I managed to escape that cult with any sort of understanding of who I was. And yet you now are it. And all the, so all the songs that made me realize that actually sex could be good and sex could be wonderful, you won't play anymore now because you're a witness. That was really one of the strangest turn of events I've known yet. Sex was such a big part of his persona, even from the early days. I remember first seeing a picture of him I think he may have been the face or smash hits or one of those magazines where he was wearing the flashes Mac and the, the stockings and the yeah. song. And his, his whole image was, was incredibly genderqueer, I guess we call it now. And very, very in your face and very, very upfront and sexual. I struggle to think of a song by Prince, which isn't about sexuality and, and God, the two things were always merged in his mind. And as a teenager that, coming out of an incredibly religious background and having suppressed my sexuality so much was really revolutionary for me. But also I think the, like Grace, I think most of my heroes terrified me at first. The first time that I saw them, there was an actual fear of them because they were challenging who I was. The first time I saw Quentin Crisp in The Naked Civil Servant, I was horrified. Yeah. Yeah. And the first time I saw David Bowie that I remember seeing David Bowie, which was when I was 14, there was the video for Boys Keep Swinging where he plays the backing singers in drag as three different separate women. I remember being horrified by that. But again, it was because I, I recognised myself in it or I recognised something of myself in it. I wonder whether that's probably quite a common experience for... LGBT people, that the people who become heroes or icons or who somehow inspire us are also people that in some ways frighten us a bit because they're reflecting back parts of ourselves that we haven't yet come to terms with, that we haven't yet learned how to express. I definitely think that's the case. I, I, I had a similar feeling about Quinta Chris the first time I saw him, and it was a female straight friend of mine who went, but he's he should be everything that you admire. And would put on a pedestal and I remember being sort of taken aback by that and I was like I think she's right so what am I actually scared of here I mean again this was long it took me a really long time to come out not so much due to homophobia more to do with the fact that I had suppressed any form of sexuality due to my religion so it was for a long time I didn't even know I, I thought I could possibly be asexual because I had suppressed everything so tight around my sexuality that I had no interest in anything. It was just so overwhelming and so terrifying and so forbidden 
that until I started listening to Prince, I didn't even entertain the idea of sex. So at what age did you come out? I came out at 21. I had gone home from Australia to see my mother on a break from uni. And I'd been discussing with my friends that I like, I think maybe I might be kind of bisexual. <laughs> and they were like, yes, we can see that. Yes, you could be bisexual, but you really like women because no one could draw a woman like you do if you didn't like them in some, some sort of way. And I was like, I don't really think that's how art works, but okay, I'll take that. Yeah, so I went home and I decided I was going to have sex with a guy because I needed to see if that was something that I enjoyed. So I found an ad in the back of a gay magazine somewhere that I bought in a news agent and just went, okay, that one sounds interesting. That's where he's, he's the one. And off I trundled. <laughs> and it was really nice. I was like, yeah, I do like this. And then I suddenly thought, oh, wait, maybe I should have sex with a girl because it wasn't like amazing. It was just nice. So I told my mother and she was like, okay. She didn't really deal with it that well. And we had the whole, it might just be a phase. I'm like, yeah, it could be, I don't know. Yeah, so then I went back to New York and told my friends and they were like, okay. So I, then I started having sex with more guys. I kept thinking, I don't really understand what the big deal about this is. It's not like, this is not how it is in the movies. So I'm not really sure that, that I am gay because I'm not really enjoying this. When I was about 26, I was talking to my friends again. I said, I think I want a boyfriend. I was having a conversation with my friend, Andrew, who introduced me to Prince. And he was like, well, you know that Richie really likes you. Richie is his uncle who had come out a few years earlier to us, but had not come out to the rest of the family at the time. And he was like, why don't you go out with Richie? Because you like him, you're friends, and he's gay and you're gay. And I was like, again, I'm not entirely sure it's that's it's that simple, <laughs> but okay. And so Andrew's like, okay, I'll set it up. And so he called Richie and said, yeah, so Jason likes you and you like Jason. I think you should just go out. So we went on a date that weekend. And at the end of it, I was just like, so shall we date? And we did for four years, very happily. It was at that point that I like came out to everybody because I was like, well, I have a boyfriend now. So, and as I always tell young gays when they're coming out, if they're scared to come out to their family, it's usually better if you have a boyfriend because if you tell your parents that I'm in love with someone, they have a, a framework to understand that. When you just come out, all they think about is the sex. It's so much easier when, when you have a partner because they can, they can understand that you have a partner. They can understand that you're in love and they tend not to think about the bit that really upsets them. That's where I went wrong, you see, because I introduced my first proper boyfriend to my parents without telling them that he was my boyfriend just that he was a friend and had intended to then, after them having met him, to then tell them. And then we split up because I found out he was having a relationship with one of my best friends behind my back. When I came out to them, it was coming out to them as a kind of broken hearted, broken hearted gay person. <laughs> not the best start. No, it's not, not the a good start because then they go with the, it's a lonely life. Yeah. <laughs> lonely life. Like, based on what? So let's talk about your third and final hero. Who is this one and why have you chosen 
them. My third and final hero is Count Basie because I met him when I was very little. I made a friend at school and I went to, we became very close friends, Aaron, and Aaron was his grandson. We used to play together a lot. I was around all the time and he really wanted me to meet his grandfather. And so one day I was over and he's like, my grandfather's coming over. I'm so excited for you to meet him. And we were playing and I looked outside his window and there was a limousine outside. And it was the first limousine I'd ever seen in my entire life. I was like, this is amazing. And I was like, Aaron, there's a limo outside the house. And he's like, oh, that'll be my granddad. And I was like, oh my God, his granddad must be amazing. And he came in in his wheelchair and he was this lovely, jolly, like grandfather-like figure and Aaron's mother introduced me and said this is my father Count Basie and my little head sort of exploded in that moment because I didn't know there could be black royalty. I was so excited by this idea that that we we were royals too that we had royals too i couldn't couldn't wait for my mother to pick me up because i just wanted to tell her i'd met someone who was royal it was such a huge thing for me and the really weird thing is i didn't fully explain this to my parents when i told them i saw my parents looking at each other going hey, what is he talking about and i just blurted out i don't understand why you don't believe me but i can see that you don't believe me but why would Aaron's mother introduce me to her father and say his name is Count Basie if he wasn't really a count? And he and, arrived in a limousine. And he arrived in a limousine, like, like a count should. And finally, I saw the light bulb go off over their heads and they were both like, okay, he is a count, but he's not a count like you think he's a count. And I was like, I don't really think that matters. He's black. And he's royalty and he's a count. And this is amazing. This is like, we are special. And la that lasted with me for a really long time because I think it was probably one of the most seminal points in my tiny little life was that I discovered that despite the way society treats us, that there was a dignity, that we did have crowns, that we were kings. No one ever really explained jazz to me or anything about. Explain a bit about him for those who don't know. Count Basie was one of the, the great jazz legends. And during the time of um, Count Basie and Duke Ellington, they decided that as society wasn't going to treat them as kings, they would crown themselves. And so Duke was the first. And then when Count Basie was coming up, everyone was like, well, you, you need a title too. And he came up with Count Basie and that that's how it began. And that's a really important thing to me because I think that finding your crown, it's one of the things that I love about the fact that gays call themselves queens because we've all had to look for our crown. And when we found it, we put it on and we wore it and we held our heads high. And that's, that's what Duke Ellington and Count Basie were doing when they crowned themselves is they were holding their heads up high and saying this is who I am I am worthy of dignity I have something special to offer and I think that's really important for all of us to sort of remember because it's very easy in the world that we live in to forget who we are and that we matter it's interesting to me that each of the people that you've talked about instilled a sense of self-worth in you and also helped you to overcome fears that you had and anxieties that you had around yourself and your sexuality and, and your place in society as a mixed race man 
and also that they inspired you in terms of reinvention. Each of them are people that reinvented themselves in different yeah. ways. And also all musicians. It's a funny thing because I have been, I've sort of been surrounded by musicians my whole life, but I am the least musical person. I think music is magic. I love music, but it's something that completely escapes me. I, I watch my friends write music and I just, I don't understand. To me, it looks like witchcraft, but I love it. And music has been such a huge part of my life in finding who I was and creating who I was and building who I was and helping to make me a, a more rounded person. But reinvention, totally. I think for a lot of queer people, we don't, we don't necessarily have role models, particularly depending on like what generation, the newer generations are getting quite lucky with that. But, you know, for people of a certain age, we didn't have a lot of heroes to look to. So we've had to sort of build and create. And it's, I think it's one of the strengths of our community is that with the absence of role models, we've had to look harder and think harder about who is inspiring and what inspires us and what it means to be a hero. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that had I watched Heartstopper or Beautiful Thing or any of the wonderful things that have happened over the last sort of 20 years, when I was a teenager, I would have taken a very different path, I suspect. But maybe not such an adventurous one in some ways because I had to make more no. leaps. No, that I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I've always taken great pleasure in constructing myself and having to find different things to draw on because... I'm very inquisitive and I've always been inquisitive. I've, I've always been an avid reader and I always enjoyed sort of searching out and asking why. Despite my parents' religious upbringings, the one thing that I did take away from both of them is that what they always instilled in my brother and I was to ask why, which was weird because then my father was like, but don't question the church. <laughs> <laughs> you told me to question, but now you're saying I shouldn't question. But that did really help me because then when I would see things that scared me when, you know, when I saw Prince, when I saw Grace, these people kind of terrified me. And then at the same time made me think, okay, but why? Why does it scare you? Why does Quentin Chris scare you? And then I had to really look at that. And I was like, actually, no, he's fearless. And what I'm afraid of is being fearless. And so I worked on making myself fearless. How fearless are you today, would you say, on a scale of one to 10? Oh, in this very moment or in general? In general. In, in general, I, I probably say I'm like a six or a seven. I'm still, you know, there are still things that scare me, but I think generally when something scares me, I say yes. So I don't consider myself fearless. I still feel fear all the time. I joke with my friends that all of the progress that we have is wonderful. But as someone who's an avid reader of history, I know how quickly it can all go away. Everything that you have can be swept away. And so that fear sort of stays with me all the time. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to go out in a cape and crown and walk through the streets. I'm still going to be me. Feel the fear and do it anyway is pretty much my mantra for life because... Life is kind of scary, but you can't let that ruin your life, ruin who you are, because what's the point then? So many people live in their fear and you see it poisons them and that's not a life.
Well, long may you continue to be fearless. <laughs> I'll try. What has it been like talking about these people and why they meant so much to you or why they mean so much to you? It's been really cathartic. It was interesting sort of picking who I was going to talk about and sort of seeing the thread. So, you know, there's a, a thread of royalty. There's obviously the thread of, of reinvention with each of them. And it's interesting sort of thinking about how each of them sort of is a plot point in becoming the person that I am. It's quite emotional when when I think about them. Breaking down in the car after meeting Grace, I was so beside myself and I was like, why are you crying? This was the best day of your life. And I think it was that she taught me to be the person that I am today. And somehow that got me into her presence. And I sort of don't know how that happened. But as a result of the person that I created because of her inspiration, I got to meet my inspiration. It still makes me really emotional. I was like, do I take a picture? Do I need to prove this? And I remember thinking, no, I don't want, I don't really want to take a picture because it can't capture what this actually means. So I like that it just lives in mine and Nico's memory. Nico told me that she did wish me a happy birthday on the next birthday. He did have to point out she didn't remember me until he said the vampire. And then she went, oh, I don't know if that actually happened or he was just telling me that to make me feel good on my following birthday. But I like to believe that it did happen and that Grace did remember me. Which goes to prove my other mantra for life, which is that you should always make an impression. My thanks to Jason for being such a great guest. And you can find out more about him and his work by visiting his website, mrandmrford.com. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. I've loved Freddie Mercury since I was a child. To be brown and gay, or to be brown and queer in general, is such a... It's still such a politically difficult thing to be. For me, Freddie Mercury was very much like how I felt about James Baldwin much later when I discovered James Baldwin's work, that he kind of held up a mirror to society, you know, but he did it through music. And I I don't know whether this is a controversial statement to make, but like, I really believe that if we had more years with Freddie Mercury, the landscape of music would look very different. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burstyn. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.